Three to one, and we are live now. Uh, and we are again with you today, and we are so happy to introduce our guest. And this guest, he loves people, he loves kids, and he makes anybody successful. Who is he? His name is Richard Gerber. He is a award-winning speaker, author of many books, like A Manifesto for Change, and uh, Simple Thinking, and Creating Tomorrow School, and from being in the school, he started working with big companies to make this company successful and Olympic champions. And also, I read about him that he started as a headmaster of the failing school and in two years transformed the school into one of the most acclaimed learning environment. Fantastic. Richard, hello. Hello. It's great to be with you. Thank you also for that amazing introduction. I just... I just hope I can live up to the expectations you've set. This is you. This is you, of course, because, <laughs> because this is you. My question to you, number one, since our interview is very short, it's around 20 minutes. So question number one. In one of the interviews, you said if you want to hire very creative, very innovative people for your company, uh, be surrounded by them, hire somebody before five years old. What's the <laughs> meaning of that? Is it a joke or is that the truth? It's a, there's a semi-serious answer to that question because one of the things that I think is fascinating that I remember learning when I was training to be a, an educator was that we learn somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetimes before we're five. So when you look at the human development and human learning graph, naught to five looks like this, five to 11 looks a bit like this, 11 to 16 looks a bit like this, and then 18 to death looks like this. And the reason I made that point is because if we could find a strategy to push the learning curve like that for longer in our lives, imagine what we could accomplish. So as people are listening to this, the thing to remember when we talk about the amount kids under five learn is I'm not talking about content or knowledge. But if you think about it, in the first five years of our lives, most of us learn to do incredible things. We learn to walk and talk. We learn to understand body language, facial expression, vocal intonation. We learn to make sense of the sensory world around us. So every single day for a young person is about dealing with change and uncertainty and reconstructing it to make it into a learning opportunity. And one of the things we have to do as adults is think a little bit more about how are dealing with uncertainty and loss of jobs and, and all of the horrific things that have come as a result of COVID. And one of the really important things for me is how we could use our childhood experiences to help us become more successful in overcoming so many of those profound challenges right now. Richard, but actually it's very frightening to know that we study 70 5% of everything at the age before five, and then that means that we become completely stupid, or what's happening with us? Or we no. are not, what, what's no. going on? 
what happens, we need to understand that the way we're educated and raised is to seek out certainty in our lives. Because traditionally, if, if you look back in history, that the, the gold standard was to find out what you were good at or what you could do, get into a career or a job that allowed you to do that, and then get your head down and perform as efficiently as you can in order to build certainty around you, you know, to have that job for life, which gives you the opportunity to own a home and, and maybe have holidays and build a lifestyle. And so what happens as we get older is we become more and more risk averse because anything new, anything challenging feels too risky to jump into. And so we ignore it. We come away from it. And one of the really important things to remember is that in life, we learn nothing new by getting something right. Yet the older we become, we become obsessed with being right all of the time. And actually, the only way you learn something new is by making a mistake or realizing that you don't know something or you can't do something. And so what we have to do as adults is let go of the fear a little bit and remind ourselves that every time we come across adversity, every time we're confronted by something we don't know or we can't do, that's the moment we need to have the courage to take that risk and opportunity because that's how we'll grow both personally and professionally. So it's not about us becoming more stupid, but what we do is we become overprotective of the world we start to inhabit and we need to allow ourselves to take more risks and more opportunity if we're really to continue to evolve as human beings. You know, I don't know how about men are, but women, of course, they are looking for security, protective environment. This is just embodied in the nature of women because they need to protect their family, their kids. And if you will say, okay, you need to go to some, uh, you know, unprotective place and to take risk, it's... Um, of course, you want to be in safe environment where you're sure you are the best at, where you're sure you can perform well. And uh, when the risky situation starts, you don't like it. So you suggest that uh, the person should take that risk or how, especially you, for example, yeah. look at you, you're educator, you didn't become uh, an actor or you didn't become, uh, you know, you didn't, uh, you didn't go to work in the circus or, you know, or in the zoo. You know, you are still continuing being educated. That means you're not risking. Well, actually, that's not true. I mean, if you take my own example. So I was, as you said, very kindly, a very successful school principal of, a, of what became an incredibly successful school. And I was uh, that was before I was 40 years old. Um, and at that time, now, the, the sensible thing to do would have been to stay in that career and that job. You know, it was a good salary. I had a really good pension. I had an amazing reputation. And that could have seen me through to the time I retired, you know, in my late 60s or 70s or whenever that would be. But actually, the interesting thing was I'd spent my life encouraging children to take risk and seize opportunity. And so actually, can you imagine the pressure? I had a family, I had a mortgage, I had all the things that most people have to step out of that. And for the first time in my life in 2007, which was when, when I chose to leave that career and become what I am now, 
to step out of that life and leave that salary and leave that pension and leave the security of being in a job I was really good at to try something completely new. So by the time I was 40, I set myself on a whole new adventure where I had no reputation, no fixed salary, no pension. And I think what's really important is to know that I backed myself, I trusted myself, and I knew that what had made me successful in one career could help me to gain and become successful in something else. And also what was really important to me was authenticity. How could I stand on a stage or write books or coach people about taking risks if I hadn't taken them myself. And so it was really important that when I speak to people, when I write books or blogs or whatever else it is I do to communicate, I need people to be able to look me in the eye and know I've walked in those shoes. I'm not standing from a place of safety and security telling other people to take risks, but that I've actually walked in their shoes. What was the reaction of your family when well, you said, I will not be the headmaster of the school anymore, I'm just going to take risk. Were they afraid or upset or what? No. I mean, I was very lucky. I have an extraordinary wife. You know, you talk about women. My wife is the power behind everything I've become. She is a successful woman in her own right. She's also, she's still a school principal. And I remember the evening we were sat having dinner and I talked this through with her. And she was actually the one who gave me the courage to take the final step because she said to me, um, you know, I'd been saying, but, but of course we need the mortgage paid and we need to do all the things that people have to do. And she was the one who looked me in the eyes and she said, Richard, you've spent 20 years, my career as an educator, you've spent 20 years telling other people to take risks and seize opportunity. Are you going to be a hypocrite and stick with the safety net? So actually, it was her courage and her incredible ability to inspire me that gave me the confidence to take that final step. So I'm very, very lucky. She's an amazing you are, woman. You are, a, uh, you are very lucky and you're a good person. To have a good wife, only a good husband can. So uh, that means both of you, you know, suit each other. My next question to you, Richard, is about how did you manage to make one of the failing schools one of the best? Only it was really... Yeah, really good question. And I think this, this spans not just education, but any organization. In many ways, the school over a 10-year period when it had gone into failure had started to react to the needs of everybody outside the school. So whether it was the government, whether it was inspectorates, whether it was governing boards or advisors or all these people who were saying, we want you to do it this way. And over that period of 10 years, we'd lost sight of who exactly the school was there for, right? So when I started at the school, my first job was to remind my community that we were there for the children. The children were actually our customers, but we were so busy trying to make everybody else happy, we'd forgotten. And so what I said to them was, I don't care about everybody else, right? Our job is to make our customers happy and those are our children. And so by refocusing everybody and reminding them about what really mattered and who really we were serving, was the major stepping point in how we transformed our school so that every decision was based about what was right for our customers first. 
and my leadership courage, I think, was about saying, everybody else will have to understand and they'll love us if we get the right job correct at the right time. And that was focusing on our primary customers who were our children. So what do you think, Richard, this unique approach when you think about customers and when you come, you said, okay, everybody forget about us. I care only about children. And this is, uh, these are people whom I care about. Can it be used in the companies since you work with Microsoft, Google and many companies, how you improve their, uh, the atmosphere in the company itself? Well, I think the really important thing is to look at the life and journey of a company. You know, when a company first starts, it has nothing to lose, right? There's no profit. There's no loss. You're starting with an idea. And entrepreneurs always start with an idea. So take, for example, Google, right? Google was created by Larry Page and Sergey Brin. And they created Google from an idea. And the idea was to find a way to organize the world's information to make it accessible for everybody. And by making it accessible for everybody, diminishing evil, because it meant you could democratize information, right? Now, when they founded the company, everything was focused on their belief, their talent, their vision. But as the company grew, as investors got involved, as the stakes got higher because they became more and more successful, suddenly they stopped believing in their vision and their values and their customers. And they started reacting to what other companies were doing. You know, suddenly conversations started to happen around, have you seen what Microsoft are working on? Have you seen what Apple are developing? And when you talk to Google about their greatest challenges or their greatest failures, they've always come when they've reacted to what other people were doing, when they've changed focus away from their belief and their values and reacted to other people. And actually, one of the great challenges for Google was to stay focused on their vision, their values, their talent, their ability, their authenticity. And when you help companies to regain the confidence to do that, What you see them, of course, do is build on what made them successful in the first place and manage and lead back in the way that built and constructed those organizations to greatness. So often it's about helping people find the courage once they've become successful to continue to evolve and develop rather than just feeling now we're successful. Our job is to protect what we have. You know, the world is changing so fast today. And COVID has been such a major accelerant of our understanding of that change and uncertainty that companies that stand still and just try to, try to protect what they have are companies that these days will become obsolete very quickly. And the companies that will do well coming out of the COVID pandemic are the companies that are agile, that are always looking for new opportunities, that are always looking to build, evolve, and innovate. And the reason why they're successful is because their people are always looking for opportunities, are entrepreneurial, are always looking for opportunities and ways to innovate. And so, you know, I know we have a short time together, but the real challenge, therefore, is about reconfiguring the way leaders lead and the way managers manage and realizing that we can't manage and lead people based on the assumption that they're incompetent 
and we're just going to lead them to competency, but actually to create cultures of assumed excellence, where our job is to create conditions for them to take risks, to evolve, to try, to experiment, and to lead and evolve the sector that they're in forwards, so that their service and their product is always changing. It's about agility. You know, in this case, Richard, the company should have atmosphere of trust. You shouldn't be afraid because if you're afraid to say, if you're afraid to try, if you're afraid to suggest, if you are afraid to be laughed at, of course, then you don't want to suggest anything because it is very, very risky and it is very dangerous. And that's it. I think it's about trust and about creating that atmosphere. That's, you know what? That is absolutely the key word, trust. It's all about trust. Um, and it's all about if people feel trusted, they're prepared to step out of their comfort zone. If, pe if people don't feel trusted, they spend their lives protecting what they have. And so for organizations to promote a genuine feeling of trust and authenticity that builds a feeling of, of psychological safety in which people know that they can try out ideas, they can, here's a great example. There was, uh, I got to interview a couple of years ago, a man called Barry Barish. Barry Barish won the 2017 Nobel Prize for Physics. And when he built his team, I asked him, how did he go about putting together the research team that went on to win a Nobel Prize? And something he said to me, which was really interesting, he said, Richard, people only made it onto my team if they had the ability to ask stupid questions. And actually, I think that's a really profound statement. We need to build cultures where people are confident enough to ask stupid questions. Yeah, this is good. The kids are so great in asking stupid questions. And I think we should learn that from them because this is our way out of all pandemic and of all connections with all the people around the world. And some questions might be not stupid or might be very smart. What do you think, Richard, about uh, what advice you can give for people who are building their brand? I, Nowadays, I think it might be not that easy. I think what's really, really important on both a personal level and also a business level is authenticity. Don't try to be all things to everybody. Don't try to build a brand that isn't authentic. And actually, people these days are becoming more and more sophisticated at, at seeing truth. And, and, you know, again, as we come through COVID, the companies that will thrive are the companies that have been genuinely supportive in this period to their employees and to their customers. So the really important thing for me is to know who you are, know what you are, and to amplify those things. But don't ever try to be something that you're not, because people these days will, will be able to see that very, very quickly. And actually, if you are what you say you are, there might well be people who don't buy your brand, who don't buy into you. But the point is, the vast majority will. And I've always said to people all over the world, I don't expect people to agree with everything I say. But what I want them to know when they go away from listening to me is that I passionately believe in what I'm saying. So I'm happy for people to agree or disagree with me, but I want them to know I've been authentic. So authenticity <laughs> is the core word here. You know, uh, you want people to be disagree with you. This is a very interesting point of view, which is uh, nice. My last question to you. Uh, I 
read in one of the interviews that you were queuing in the Starbucks and people were ordering something unique, macchiato, coffee latte vanilla on the soya milk, I don't know, whatever. And then uh, because you just wanted black coffee, there was nothing exotic in your order. You just decided to run away, not yeah. to disappoint people with your... Uh, what's the meaning of that? You... Well, uh, it, yeah, it, it was really, it was really the catalyst for my book, Simple Thinking. Um, I, so I was queuing for this coffee outside the world's first Starbucks in Seattle. I had a day off. I was working with Microsoft actually at the time. And I had a day off and I was queuing for a coffee. And in the queue, the people ahead of me were ordering these incredibly complex things they wanted done to their hot liquid, you know, half and half brevet, caramel syrup without sugar. And I want it extra hot. And I remember the, and the thing was, it was like a celebration, right? It was a place people who loved Starbucks were going. And, and what was happening was after every order, everyone was whooping and cheering a yay, great order, awesome order. <laughs> and I thought in a minute, I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna say, can I have a cup of black coffee and a medium sized cup, please? And people would be disappointed. So I walked away, but as I walked away, I, I, what really struck me was the culture we seem to have evolved, which is things can only be of value if they're complicated. And I truly disagree with that, that actually one of the problems we now lead in our modern complex lives is we've overcomplicated so much. And we believe that things can only be of value if they're complicated. But actually the elegant simplicity and joy of a cup of black coffee is how Starbucks started in the first place. And the problem we have to solve is to stop believing things have to be complex to be right or of value. And sometimes we need to trust our instincts more and the simplicity of the ideas we have. And remember that actually that's the elegance of the beauty of simplicity is where success always begins. We have even a proverb that everything that is genial, all uh, genial is simple. You know, there is nothing is that and that. It's just very simple. And the simplicity is the key to success and the key for people to understand you. If you cannot explain what you're doing and if you cannot explain what you want, and if you're even afraid to say what you want to yourself, how then people will know what you want if you don't know yourself and if you don't articulate what you want? It's, it's such a great point. It's such a great point. And that's exactly the issue. You know, it goes back to your previous question about brand. If you overcomplicate, people will not understand. And the really important thing is you have to have clarity. You have to have clarity. You have to be able to demonstrate that clarity in your actions and your behaviors, which is authenticity. And if people can understand and identify with who you are and what you are, what you're selling and what you're creating, then people will buy in to what you do. You know, when you think about the last few years and you think about whether you agree with certain politicians or not, the politicians that have been successful in the last few years are the ones that offer really simple messaging. And the politicians that have struggled over the last few years may be the more attractive, may, may be the ones you want to believe in, but they've overcomplicated what they're offering and people don't understand it, so they move away. And the same thing is true of people and organizations. 
absolutely right. And uh, I read an article today about Angela Merkel, who was leaving her post, and that people were staying for six minutes applauding her. And she's living such a simple life. She said, I do laundry myself. Uh, they said, how many people help you in the house to clean, to cook? And Angela Merkel said, I'm doing it myself, or my husband is doing it because actually it's very easy. And even we try not to put our laundry machine at night because maybe the neighbors will be disturbed by the sound of the laundry machine. And this is something that touched my heart, how you can be, you know, the leader of one of the, you know, super powerful country in Europe and be that simple. Well, let me, if I have time, let me just finish with this thought for you on a similar strain, right? So a few years ago, I had the incredible honor of, of meeting and working with Barack Obama. And the first thing that you notice about Barack Obama, despite his fame and his success, and he is very down to earth, very normal. He has no ego and he has an immense gift to communicate simply, right? Now, I asked him one question, and maybe this is a thought to leave you on. I said, what's the one thing you've learned during your eight, eight years in the White House? He said, I'll tell you, Richard. He said, when I first became president, I surrounded myself with the greatest technical minds on earth. He said, but when I look back on all the problems that crossed my desk, I realized that virtually none of them were technical by nature. When you climbed inside the problem, they all virtually started with human qualities. They were about love, anger, jealousy, greed, hatred, tribalism. He said, and actually, the issue is we often go too quickly to the system and the structure. We look at the gloss and the big stuff and we forget that virtually every issue we deal with starts with humanity and human behavior. And that is exactly what I think Angela Merkel was also talking about in her interview. And the truly great people don't have to surround themselves with complexity because when you strip them down to their basics, they are absolutely profoundly brilliant at understanding the human condition. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. Thank you so much, Richard, for sharing your very, very big experience of loving people, educating people and giving hope to people. And I hope next time you will never run away from any Starbucks and all people will say, Richard, this is for you. And even if black coffee, whatever. I think the main uh, takeaway for me from this interview is to think simple, to be authentic who you are, not to compare yourself with others. And um, also, what else? That try your best to be like you were at the age of five. Ask there you go. Questions and study. There you go. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you so much. So for much. I enjoyed so much. I enjoyed being with you. It is a big, big pleasure. Thank you bye. so much. Good luck. We will be in touch. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Thank you.